as I've said before, the age in which we live will be recorded by historians many years from now as the age of the sexual revolution. There have been other revolutions in human history, the Industrial Revolution, the Technological Revolution. Our age will go down as the sexual revolution, meaning during this generation, and really for the past 50 to maybe 100 years, there has been a progressivism that has sought to change the boundaries of what is permissible with regards to sexual ethics. Perhaps the defining mark of this time has been the effort to change those boundaries or to do away with them completely. It barely needs to be stated that the sexual revolution is at odds with biblical Christianity. The sexual revolution runs contrary to biblical Christianity. And the reason for that, at least in part, is because it runs contrary to the words of our Lord Jesus. The words spoken here in Matthew chapter 5, where he prizes open the intent of the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery, and shows us what is the heart issue. Now you'll remember this text comes within the broader context of what we often term the six antitheses. This is a subunit within the Sermon on the Mount, often labeled as the six antitheses. Six times Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Six times Jesus pushes back against something. He deliberately attempts to undermine something. Not, as we observed last week, the Old Testament law Jesus is not seeking to undermine the ministry of Moses. During this unit, the six antitheses, you have to keep in mind, chapter 5, verse 17, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. Rather, we understand contextually, Jesus is pushing back against what would have been the pharisaical interpretation and application of the law. As the Pharisees had picked up the Old Testament commandments, they had then distorted their true intent by way of their teaching, and Jesus wants to undermine that system. He wants to affirm the Old Testament law and apply it to those around him, giving a new law in this new era that really gets to the heart of what Moses was teaching. May the word be living and active to us today. Where there is sin, may the Lord confront it. Where there is need for conviction, may the Holy Spirit bring it. 
where there is need for encouragement. May it be found. And may the Lord lead us in that path of greater righteousness that Jesus commends. Now, to try and understand this short text, I want to ask three questions of it. First question that I want to think through with you is what exactly is the prohibition that Jesus gives? Jesus pushes back against the Pharisees and in so doing gives us a prohibition, a very clear commandment. We need to think carefully about the nature of that prohibition, what Jesus is saying and what he's not saying. Then, It's important for us to think through how this prohibition that Jesus issues, that we are under this morning, is to be for our flourishing. You'll remember, if you've been with us, this whole sermon sits under the banner of flourishing. Not just the Beatitudes, they're an introduction to the entire sermon, and Jesus leads with that word blessed. He desires for his disciples to flourish. How is this prohibition intended to be for our flourishing? And then the final question we'll ask this morning, how should we then live, borrowing from Schaeffer's title of his famous book, how should we then live, he wrote about the rise and fall of Western thought and culture in this time of the so-called sexual revolution, we might well ask how we ought to live. How should we live in response to Jesus' teaching? There are three questions, beginning with the first, what is the nature of the prohibition? Jesus here seemingly is quoting verbatim from the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Again, he's not doing away with or undermining the Old Testament law, but as the Pharisees had taught it and applied it, so they had distorted it. And we'll see that even more clearly in weeks to come as Jesus doesn't quote verbatim from the commandment as it's found in the text, but often gives something of a paraphrase which represents the Pharisaical teaching. Here he pushes back on how the Pharisees had distorted the seventh commandment. Seemingly, they had externalized it, rendering the sin merely an external issue, not teaching anything of the heart, and reduced it down to a very small subset of scenarios. You have heard it said you should not commit adultery, appealing to the Pharisees' teaching. By contrast, verse 28, there's the emphatic declaration of what Jesus comes to teach. I say to you, and here's his correction, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her, in his heart. What is the prohibition? It's worth saying, though it may be obvious, the prohibition that Jesus gives is not intended to be limited to men only. 
he does use an example here wherein the man is the guilty party. Specifically, a man looking at a married woman. I say to you that everyone who looks at could be rendered a wife, a married woman, someone who is not his spouse, is guilty. That's the example Jesus uses. I trust it's fairly intuitive that Jesus intends to give a principle that is applicable to both men and women. Both men and women can be guilty of this sin. Additionally, it's worth saying, as Jesus sets forth one we might call case study, a woman who is married, a man looking at that woman, that's his case study, he's not limiting the issue to that one scenario. Elsewhere in the Bible, we're taught more fully about the nature of sexual immorality. Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1, Galatians 5, Hebrews 13, and many other texts speak more fully about the nature of sexual immorality mentioning not only the sin of adultery, but many others, not least homosexuality, promiscuity, and so on. Jesus intends to give an example within which is a principle that he anticipates we would take hold of and map that principle to every other manifestation of the sin. So we must not restrict the principle to the one scenario that Jesus gives, which quite possibly is exactly what the Pharisees had been doing. What is the principle? The principle and the prohibition is that any sexual desire that is pursued in the heart, out with the context of marriage, is a sin. Any sexual desire pursued in the heart, apart from the context of marriage, is a sin. God established boundaries in the second chapter of the Bible. God ordained the institution of marriage. And the nature of marriage, as we find it both in Genesis 2 and all the way through Scripture, is always, only, ever an exclusive and permanent relationship between one man and one woman. That is the only context within which a sexual desire can be rightly pursued. An exclusive and a permanent relationship between one man and one woman is the God-ordained relationship within which we can honor him with our desires for physical intimacy. Any pursuit of that desire at a heart level that ignores the context given by God plainly and consistently throughout his word, Jesus says, is sinful. One example here of a woman who is married and a man lusting after her in his heart. But again, as he gives the principle, he expects that we would 
map it across to any way in which this sin would seek to manifest itself in our lives. If you are a married man and you pursue in your heart a desire for another woman, a woman who is not your wife, you are guilty of this sin. If you're a married woman and you pursue a desire for another man, one who is not your husband, you are guilty of this sin. If you are single and you pursue in your heart a desire for sexual intimacy with somebody who is not your spouse, that is to say anyone, you are now guilty of this sin. If you are a man and you pursue a desire in your heart for another man, this is sin. If you're a woman and you pursue a desire in your heart for another woman, it's sin. If you pursue a desire in your heart for a child, it's sin. We can go on and on. The point is there is one context within which sexual desires can rightfully be pursued. One context within which we can glorify the Lord with these desires. You see, another sermon is to speak about that context and how you pursue the desires within that context. But here, the principle is simply that any other context is rendering the desire a sin. The pursuit of the desire is what Jesus brings into view. Now, it is important to understand that Jesus is not here rendering the lustful desire as synonymous with the physical act of adultery. He says, you've already committed adultery in your heart. It's a nature, a kind of adultery in the heart. It is not synonymous with pursuing adultery physically. Jesus himself elsewhere teaches about a gradation of sins. The Bible is plain that some sins are more severe and bring greater consequences. And throughout these six antitheses, Jesus is not trying to flatten the landscape so that every single sin is equally as serious. He's not saying you are now an adulterer with all of the consequences that come from physical, actual adultery. What he is doing, again, is pushing back against the Pharisees' teaching, which had rendered the sin as merely external, mentioning nothing of heart attitudes. They had taught the only way in which you break this commandment is to physically commit the act of adultery, and Jesus blows that teaching out of the water and probes the heart. External religion is easy religion. If your religion is only practiced at an external level, it is not hard to be one who upholds the law. It's exactly what the Pharisees did. And so Jesus speaks about the heart, not making it synonymous with the act of adultery. And I say that tentatively because I understand as soon as you hear that, the inclination is to belittle this sin. To think all of a sudden, well, it, 
it's not that big a deal then. If it, if it isn't synonymous with the actual act of adultery, then do I really need to be that concerned about it? And the answer is yes. You have to take seriously the heart issue. Why? First and foremost, we take seriously the heart issue because the meditations of your heart affect, they affect and they effect your beliefs. Do you believe this? The meditations of your heart affect and give rise to, they effect what it is that you believe. Whatever you set your mind and your heart towards starts to change the way that you think and what it is that you affirm and what it is that you deny. That's why if you come here week after week after week, you won't hear a new message. You will hear me commend to you to set your heart upon the glory of Christ. Think upon him. Pursue him as the meditations of your heart because that determines what you think about everything else. As you are disciplined to take in the glory of Christ as he is presented in Scripture, not your version of him, the version of Christ that God gives us in his word that affects what you believe about him. And it affects what you believe about everything else. And so the heart issue is serious because as you allow your heart to linger in a place where it ought not to be, you start to change your belief system. If you are content to pursue lustful thoughts of a woman that is not your wife, you start to change what you believe. It's not that all of a sudden you can fool yourself into thinking she's not married. Rather, you start to think that her marriage isn't important. You start to believe that she's an object for your pleasure. You start to believe that God is foolish as he institutes the exclusive nature of marriage. You change your belief system by pursuing the lusts of the heart. And not only that, the heart issue is worth taking seriously because it is our thoughts that so often lead to action. You never did anything without thinking of it first. You never did a thing without first conceiving of it in your mind. There is, in its truest sense, no such thing as a spontaneous action. You slam your brakes on on the freeway. You thought to do that first. You pursue a woman who is not your wife. You thought to do that first. Your thoughts don't always lead to actions, but so often they do. And so we take seriously the heart issue that Jesus exposes here that sits under, in, that seventh commandment. 
And if the Holy Spirit is convicting you of sin, then you need to repent. You know where you allow your heart to go. You know where your heart has been. You know what habits you're in the practice of as it relates to pondering and allowing, giving voice to certain desires. If the Holy Spirit is convicting you, you need to repent. By God's grace, to turn away from your sin and towards obedience to the words of Christ. Now, as I say that, I understand that you may be hearing it not with a joyful spirit. You may be hearing that call to repentance not joyfully, not necessarily willingly, but begrudgingly. Jesus is a killjoy. My desires are so strong. How then should I manage them? How can I be obedient? Why do I need to repent of my meditations? And this leads us on to that second question. How is it that Jesus' command could truly be for us flourishing? The whole sermon is designed for our flourishing. As Christians, as disciples, followers of Christ, the whole sermon is designed for our abounding. He leads those beatitudes, blessed, blessed, blessed. He doesn't want to be a killjoy. He does not intend to create a burden for your back to crush you. He wants for you as his disciple to flourish. How is this command intended to bring about such flourishing? And I would say I think that question is particularly worthy of our consideration, thinking again on the time in which we live. The sexual revolution. Movements for many years that have sought to break down previously established boundaries. Efforts to render acceptable what had previously for generations been unacceptable. This is where we sit. This is the age in which we live. And so, I think part and parcel of that age, that revolution, has been perhaps the most preeminent victory for Satan in the last century, namely success in rendering sexual desires as part of our identity. Perhaps the most preeminent victory of Satan in the last 100 years has been to successfully render within the public sphere the idea that our sexual preferences and desires are a constituent part of our identity. What do I mean by that? Go back 100 years, 200 years, speak to someone and say, what does it mean 
to be a person? What does it mean to live a fulfilled life? What does it mean to flourish? I do not imagine that they would give an answer that contains any reference to their sexual desires or the fulfillment of their sexual preferences. It would not be part of what they understand to be a person. Today, you see this shift by virtue of people speaking, not as what they do or would like to do, but who they are. We hear about this thing called identity politics. The conversations that happen under that title, in large measure, orient around what is acceptable in the domain of sexual ethics. It's not called desire politics. People don't refer to it as fulfillment politics. They call it identity politics. So that now, if someone is denied their ability to fulfill their sexual desire of choice, they claim that they're not being allowed to live a human life that they're not being allowed to flourish as God intended. And it is a lie. This shift from sexual desire to the part of identity is a lie that has come from hell. Consider Christ, who lived the most fulfilled life anyone has ever lived. Never struggled with discontent. He never had a physically intimate relationship. Your sexual preferences are not constituent to your identity. And so, possibly, we feel Christ's prohibition more acutely than anyone else in all of history. Perhaps. I do believe that as Jesus spoke these words, his hearers would have been taken aback. He's correcting the pharisaical interpretation and application of the seventh commandment. I do believe they would have been shocked. Perhaps, as these words come to our generation, they are harder yet for us to appropriate. And if you're living your Christianity within the gaze of the unbelieving world, at some point I would venture to say you have to be able to give an answer for Jesus' teaching on sexual ethics. By virtue of the age in which we live, at some point as part of your testimony, Not merely how it was that you came to know Christ, but what it means to sit under his lordship today as part of your ongoing testimony. You need to be able to explain and you will be asked about the New Testament ethic that condemns even lust in the heart, any desire that transgresses the God-ordained boundaries of marriage. How do we find this? to be for us flourishing? The answer 
very simply, is because God had a plan which was so good that any deviation away from it is sin. How can we find this to be flourishing? Because there is another side to the prohibition, the exhortation, the commendation that couples with the prohibition is one that esteems marriage. And God's plan for a man and a woman to come together in an exclusive and permanent relationship is so good that every deviation away from it is sin. That's how it can be flourishing for us. There is an implicit exhortation within Jesus' command here to esteem and uphold the better plan. Wherever your heart is prone to go, Jesus says there is another way that God has laid forth and it is so good. Consider the goodness of marriage in that God in his wisdom ordains first and foremost a loving, trusting relationship before it is a relationship within which sexual desires can be rightly pursued. Before it is that, it is first and foremost a relationship of trust, of confidence given, of assurance, promise. Do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife to have and to hold until death part you or Jesus returns? I do. And there is something being indicated in those words. In that ceremony, the husband and the wife are committing to one another and rendering an exclusive relationship. We can have friends, we can have many friends, but no one is my husband but you. You are my only wife, and the exclusivity of the relationship lays a foundation within which sexual desires can be pursued in a way that is not damaging. It is a safe environment. The desires are God-given. A man for a woman and a woman for a man, but they must be pursued rightly. And how disastrous it is when you pursue those desires out with the safe, trusting relationship that God ordained called marriage. The goodness of marriage is seen in that God ordains for us a sphere of living where man and woman can be naked and not ashamed. Consider the goodness of marriage as it is the fundamental building block of society. The marital union between a husband and a wife is and always has been the fundamental building block of society. Everything comes from that. And so if you want to see what direction a society is headed, just look to see whether they are esteeming marriage or downplaying its significance. Consider the laws that are being passed to see whether marriage is being upheld and sustained or attacked. And as a side note, to label something as marriage that God's word does not say is marriage doesn't render it a marriage. 
When two people of the same sex come together, we may call it marriage. It is not. It doesn't change God's word. And when you pursue lust in your heart, you are waging war on that union. You are casting an opinion concerning marriage. Every marriage, not just the marriage that you might be bringing into view by pursuing that thought, every marriage is being assaulted in your heart by pursuing that lustful thought. Esteem marriage in your heart and you will flourish because it is intended to be the building block for society. Consider the goodness of marriage. as it points forward to something far greater. One day I won't be married. And that's not because God doesn't esteem marriage. God prizes marriage so highly that he designed for it to be a signpost to a greater marriage between Christ and his church. And when the greater marriage comes, we won't need the signpost anymore. That's how good the plan is. God didn't design everything that way, but he did ordain marriage to function so as to project our hearts forward to when Christ has the marriage supper of the Lamb with his saints. And so, as you esteem marriage for its goodness, there is much flourishing available to you. So you see, Christ is not a killjoy. He's not robbing you of any joy that is rightfully yours. He's hemming you in from much harm. And he is commending to you a flourishing that comes from esteeming marriage. There are a multitude of implications that flow out from Jesus's teaching here, not least that you would strive each day to further esteem marriage in your own heart, but also in your own life. And as you bear witness to those around you, husbands tell your wife that you love her. Tell your wife that you are thrilled to be married to her. Come home from work and give mom a hug and a kiss and allow the children to see because they need to understand how wonderful marriage is and you are teaching them through your behavior. And if you are not esteeming marriage before them, why should they have a high opinion of it when they leave your care? 10, 15, 20 years from now, you want for when there is a lust burning in their heart, you want for them to make a good choice. 
And they make a good choice by now seeing your example of just how highly you value marriage. Wives, tell your husbands, I love you. I'm so thankful that God brought us together in marriage daily. Return to the wonder of marriage on a daily basis, acknowledging that we all bring sin into the relationship. We all have our imperfections, that which is not beautiful, but you're esteeming the relationship so as to obey Christ. Now, in light of Jesus' prohibition, how should we live? What do we do in response? Jesus says in verse 29, in light of his teaching, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better that you don't have a hand or an eye than that you are thrown into hell. It's important to note the context, again, in which these words are spoken is one of discipleship. The context is one of the the new birth. The context is one of the effectual call. The context is one of repentance and faith in Christ. So before we think specifically what Jesus is teaching here, first, we must remind ourselves You will have no mastery over your lust until Jesus is Lord over your life. Exactly the same as it was with anger, you will not know mastery over your lust until Jesus is Lord over your life. You prize him, he is the object of your affections, you take him at his word, you repent from your sin and put your faith in him. That is the key that allows the path of obedience. Jesus shed his blood for your purity. Jesus shed his blood to give you a new heart. And at the cross there is complete Forgiveness. I want to stress that as you come here this morning. No, at the cross there is complete forgiveness for your sins. However you may have sinned in this area, complete forgiveness is found at the cross. Not only complete forgiveness, but so also healing. There is healing to be found as you put your faith in Christ and follow after him. And then Jesus, with that theological assumption in place, gives the roadmap. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Again, shocking words. And slightly confusing in that Jesus has just opened up the seventh commandment, and demonstrated that there's a heart issue that needs to be addressed. It cannot be merely external. There's a heart issue. 
And then he says, cut off your hand. Jesus knows that by cutting off your hand, it won't fix the heart issue. Jesus knows that. There are those in church history who have taken these verses literally and have gone on record writing how they've regretted it after. Jesus knows the heart issue is not fixed by cutting off your hand, far less gouging out your eye. The point is, he is showing us how seriously we should take the fight. Putting your faith in Christ does not make you perfect. You continue to sin because the flesh remains. And you will keep sinning until Christ returns and you stand before him. And on that day, your sanctification will be complete. Therefore, there is a fight. There is a fight to be had. And Jesus wants to show us just how serious the fight must be. If your right hand happens to be an avenue that facilitates your lustful desires, cut it off. If your eye is the avenue that facilitates the lustful desires, gouge it out. Undoubtedly hyperbolic language. Nonetheless, the fight must be real and present and consistent and dealt with seriously in your life. The point is this. Whatever it takes, you wage war against the lusts that are in your heart. If you have to switch jobs and sacrifice your salary and your career and your benefits for the sake of fighting against the lust of your heart, you do it. If you have to change the way in which you drive to work so as to avoid a lust in your heart, you do it. If you have to not subscribe to a certain station or pull out the internet from your house, you so do it. 10,000 years from now, no one is going to be questioning whether you had high-speed internet in your home. The only, I am being utterly serious, the only question that will continue to play itself out with all of its ramifications 10,000 years from now is whether you obeyed Christ. The ramifications of disobeying him are such that on the last day when he appears... He will say, your behavior shows that you were not following me. And then, with hands and eyes and everything that you refuse to deny, you go into hell. How should we live? You fix your eyes on Christ. You esteem marriage. And you cut off every avenue that facilitates the sin of lust. May God lead us as a church in this way of obedience. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this teaching of Christ. It is not merely external law-keeping that honors you. It is a right heart, one that refuses to pursue a desire out with the context of marriage. That is the only context in which we can rightly honor you with our desires 
Our sexual desires must be expressed only ever within the union of one man, one woman, exclusive and permanent within marriage. Forgive us for where we have sinned. Wash us clean of the lusts of our hearts. We praise you this morning that Jesus shed his blood so that we might know such cleansing and even healing. Give us faith in Christ. Father, I pray that you would impress upon us yet more the glorious nature of marriage. Help us to see the goodness of your plan. A desire expressed in any other direction, in any other context, is sin because the plan is so good. It is your plan. May we, as a church, esteem and celebrate marriage. Husbands, wives, single people, our children. May we esteem marriage. And as we do so, Father, give us strength to cut off, to sever every avenue that facilitates lust. We cannot be too zealous in the fight. May we, with eyes of faith, gaze upon Christ esteem marriage, and cut off every avenue that facilitates lust. We ask in Christ's name.